Well, hi, everybody. It's Toby Miller here. Welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. And as always, you can follow my adventures at tobymiller.org. And I'm here with a co-adventurer over many years. I can even say over several decades, which is frightening. My very dear beloved friend, George Udisse, who once, when in a meeting that I attended, as different people came into the room, pronounced his name four different ways. George, how do you most like to be introduced nowadays? Doesn't matter. Because remember that meeting, you were Udice, 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 and Udis. Right, think. and you could also add Udice and Uterus. <laughs> all these, you go by <laughs> all these school, names. In high school, that was what you were called. Kids used to call me Uterus. Nice, <laughs> nice. So, you're here in Southern California, you're visiting us from Miami, and I'm very glad about that. Tell us, if you could, what work you're focusing on at the moment in research terms uh, in Miami and also Costa Rica, where you live, I guess, half the time? Right, yes. Well, in Miami, I started um, a site, an observatory. It's called Observatory on Communication and Creative Industries. And although uh, I'm less active this past semester, in this semester because I'm chair, it takes up a lot of my time. We are tracking and mapping uh, cultural activities throughout Miami, what's going on in the music scene, in the arts, uh, but in issues like religion, everyday life of different groups that normally do not get visibility or press or television coverage or make it into tourist manuals. Uh, and we are hoping to actually get them enough visibility so that we can increase some of the flows of people that come to Miami to those areas. Uh, so that includes, aside from the obvious Cubans and Haitians, who are the, in a sense, the most salient, the face of Miami, uh, aside from the usual, like South Beach, you know, where people are familiar with, with the beach and, and the denizens of that area, uh, Peruvians in the neighborhoods, Venezuelans, uh, Central Americans, so on and so forth. Uh, and we've already got on the site right now uh, a new initiative with Haitians and also uh, some work on uh, independent, underground, uh, transnational Cuban musicians that's called Habanization. Actually, there's an event today, and we have coverage on the site uh, for that, and a series of other initiatives that are taking place with colleagues, uh, uh, Cuban films. Um. We do have an initiative as well, and this is involves, well, my research is connected to this because I'm doing work in Miami. So I am particularly interested in working with music producers. I'm going to bring music producers together and get a sense of how much live music is taking place in all these different neighborhoods. Miami's made up of 35 municipalities. Uh, most people are familiar with Miami Beach, uh, the downtown area, Brickell, Coconut Grove, and uh, Coral Gables, and that usually is about it. More recently, Wynwood, which is the art district, and the design district. And then that leaves another almost 30 municipalities that are quite vibrant. And uh, so 
we want to get a sense of what's really taking place on the ground in terms of music. Um, the Miami also connected one of my initiatives, which is basically to do research in what my wife does, Sylvie Duran, who runs a network in Central America. Uh, it, it's, it, it, it had its beginnings when she traveled throughout Central America in the 90s with other people, getting to know artists, uh, indigenous craftsmen, people do, uh, indigenous peoples, Garifunas, the, the Afro descendants on the Caribbean coast of Central America, all the way through Belize, to get to know what they do and to begin to partner with them. And given the fact that there's very little cultural policy or funding from governments for particularly peripheral work that she was interested in, um, she began to look for. She moved from being an artist to becoming um, a kind of arts manager or promoter uh, in order to get opportunities for people working in collaboration throughout Central America. That went through various iterations, the last one of which has a very strong uh, internet uh, portal through which all these people are networking. And aside from that networking where people register and put all their information, then they meet in different countries uh, to promote those initiatives and actually try to create some kind of market regionally and also present that work that regional work outside, particularly in Europe, and the initiative that we're working on is in the United States, through Miami, through the Spanish uh, Cultural Center of Miami, which is the only cultural Spanish cultural center outside Spanish-speaking countries. And, in, and the reason why it's in Miami is that Miami is seen as a Spanish-speaking city, which it, it's more than any other city in the United States. So in any case, what we were doing there is taking advantage of the kind of um, uh, corporate social responsibility that is more characteristic of corporations in the United States and orienting it towards culture probably for the first time, at least for Latin America, and getting a synergy of groups, initiatives from Central America working together, raising the consciousness also of what kind of work they do uh, among in, in the United States and getting that going. So it's, it's only a little piece where we connect to that, but basically in terms of research, I follow through the kinds of uh, in, in initiatives and opportunities that come out of networking. Networking that is both virtual but also occasionally face-to-face -face where the and so I, I go to a lot of the meetings where and it's no longer just Central American because the Central Americans look for opportunities in other places including Brazil Colombia and the United States in order to give opportunities for the musicians in this particular case the same kind of networking in other areas takes place whether it's in the arts dance theater so on and so forth so the people that are brought together in this initiative called Cultura e Integración, which is Central American, uh, are seeking those uh, opportunities both in the region as a larger market than these small countries and 
outside the region. So those are two areas that I'm working in. Aside from, I'll talk about Latino media today, which I'm also interested in. Yeah, sure. And in terms of, in particular, the observatory, how can people find out more? It's simple. It's www.miamiobservatory.org. Terrific. Yeah. And this model of the observatory is something that people in Europe and Latin America will be familiar with, but U.S. listeners may not be so much. Right. I guess what a U.S. in in the United States, we called it an observatory to make it compatible with what goes on in Latin America and Europe. But in the United States, you can imagine that a research center would put out much of the same kind of information, statistics on what goes on in different uh, sectors of a particular field that they're looking at. So if you're looking at culture industries, you would have your statistics on television, radio, um, publishing, so on and so forth, right? Um, we, at this moment, are statistic and quantitative light and much more qualitatively heavy in what we're doing. Um, although we do plan on moving into gathering information where there is less information, particularly on an area that I'm interested in is the networking of Latin Americans uh, in the U.S., either through Latino channels or aside from Latino channels. And that's not been well charted. So our observatory involves a lot of mapping, and we're also using GIS systems in some of this mapping. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. So getting on to some of the issues that pertain to this, I guess. One of the things that, again, many listeners may not be aware of, not only people outside the U.S., but even U.S. people, is the way in which Miami, as you mentioned, is thought of as a Latin American city. Many Latin Americans count it as a Latin American city, even though, of course, numerically, Los Angeles is one of the biggest Spanish-speaking cities in the world. Right. It's, I think it's number three uh, now. Um, but it's... it's that, despite the Haitian uh, presence, which is very important, uh, who are mostly French speakers, or are French speakers. Creole. And Creole. And uh, it's that, both at the level of the traditional Cuban migration over the last 50 years especially, but also in terms of a lot of quite upper-level culture industry migration, isn't it? And not oh, necessarily yeah. migration, but networking. Yeah. I, well, the first thing to be said about why Miami is a Spanish-speaking city in a very different way is that Miami has a very high concentration of upper middle class and high professionals that are Spanish-speaking. Uh, and that m makes it very different than L.A. or New York, yeah. which are the other two major, well, San Antonio and all these other cities as well. Yeah. are also Spanish-speaking. However, the big difference is that Miami, like any other city, is a dual city, and it's a dual city with Spanish-speaking. So you have as many elites, right, uh, working in, in the culture industries and other in the banking especially, banking and... and, and politics. Uh, High-end services in politics, so on and so forth. There's a high concentration, and they are Spanish speakers, and that's largely due to the fact 
that when the Cubans migrated, the upper class migrated from 1959 through the 60s, at the very beginning they were able to bring their wealth, or already had some of their wealth here, but they had all the social and cultural capital that goes with their class position and all the connections made to actually can just hit the ground running with industrial connections mm. in banking and a series of other areas. So Miami is actually a large banking center. In a parenthesis, we'd have to add narco-traffic to that because actually narco-traffic added a lot to Miami's financial position, right? as it does to other cities. But that also feeds into real estate, into culture industries and what have you. In fact, your observatory is directly funded. Oh yes, through, okay. through the through, through, through the through the uh, through the setas cartel. The setas cartel. Yeah, that's the secret part of the web address. Yeah. <laughs> no. By the way, just to, to be absolutely clear, I made all that shit up. Right. <laughs> In all jocosity, that's not the case. Uh, in any case. That's one thing to be taken into consideration. And then the reason why it has an advantage over other cities, when you hear in other cities, like in LA or New York, people who came in the 60s, that when they came to school, they weren't allowed to speak Spanish. The Cubans would not have that. The Cubans said, fuck you. Right. We're speaking Spanish. <laughs> because Spanish is not a subordinate language. Yeah. Actually, Spanish is a language of business, it's a language of right. culture, and so on and so forth. And when you go to the business-only lounge in Miami airport, as opposed to any other airport in the United States, if you're a light-skinned, Euro-style person, you are unusual. Right. But you can be a light Euro-styled person, you could look like Robert Redford and be a Spanish speaker well, you, uh, in Miami. Absolutely. And that's what happens. It's Miami will be confusing sometimes to non-Miamians because you'll come across... I thought it was Miamites. <laughs> Miamites. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so that's what happened to the trees in my yard. <laughs> the Miamites got to them. The Miamites. <laughs> by the way, case, this is, we, we're talking before lunch, in case you're wondering about my giggling. And yeah, yeah, and, and there's no alcohol in his tea. <laughs> in any case, um, the... Uh, I already lost track of that list. Right. No, you were talking <laughs> I, I got about stuck on Miami, the Miamites. Miami, right. <laughs> Robert Redfordite. Oh, yeah. So, so what happens Miami. is that one of the interesting things about Miami, in fact, I saw this when I voted, when I went to vote for Obama. Uh, I, there were clearly, ang in, in, in quotes, right, in scare quotes, Anglos, mm. which is also a term that's very odd in Miami. Uh, in any case, uh, the the people spoke Spanish. Those those people who were running the elections spoke Spanish. Spanish, and it was clear that one of the complaints of, if you follow the now the, the kind of terminology in in Miami to refer non-Hispanic whites, um, is that they've always complained about. Miami becoming a Spanish city when it shouldn't because you know, it's, in, you know, it's in the United States and the United States you speak, should speak English. Right. Well, Miami didn't turn out that way. way. Now, thinking about politics, I wonder if we could talk about that for a moment before we go back to your research work. 
And I'm especially interested in something that applies to pollsters and marketers equally, which is even amongst, for instance, Spanish language pollsters or Spanish language marketing firms, of which there are dozens across the United States, in addition to large subsections of big Anglo-style ad agencies, how do you sell to this consumer? How do you target them? In the George W. Bush campaign of 2000, they actually decided that they needed 40% of the so-called Latino vote for him to get over the line and win. Now, whether he did get over the line and win is a matter of debate. They did the same in 2004, and he got that. He did, yeah. Currently, people like Mitt Romney, and we're speaking in February of 2012, are running just about 30% only, and that's as good as any Republican is getting. And yet, I wonder about the utility, the credibility of this notion of a Latino vote. I, well, I don't think that there is a Latino vote because Hispanic Latinos or whatever you want to call them, people of that descent, are very different in different areas. So in Miami, one can say in, with hindsight that in the Obama election, 57% of all Cubans voted for Obama. 72% of youth, people below 30. So there definitely is a difference between the younger generation and the older generation. Um, but that it was a higher percentage outside Miami voting for, for Which would normally Biden, happen for a Democrat. Which normally happened for a Democrat. It's a Republican stronghold. I think that, that um, the, the one area where Republicans are going to have difficulty is with the immigration issue, in which, uh, in fact, even you know, right wingers like uh, Rose Let Letnin, the 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 congresswoman from the Mi from Miami, uh, she wants to have something like an English plus, not English only. So the Miamians are not that comfortable with anti-immigrant positions. Right, and then when you add, and keep in mind, the Cubans are only forty-five percent of the Hispanic slash Latino constituency. The other fifty-five are from other places, right? And they're less likely to be on. Of course, they're also less likely to vote because they're poor. They're recent. They're recent. They're recent and they're poor. Either they're recent and they're poor, or if they're and and the the recentness in some cases, like the Venezuelans, they had the same aspirations that the Cubans had, that they're here only while, quote-unquote, a strong man is in power, in this case, Chavez, and that they don't see him. The only thing that might make, take him away might be cancer, but probably not the vote. <laughs> One of the things George is uh, talking about here when he mentions English only is that the United States, although it could very easily in the 18th century have become a German language exactly. country, is predominantly English language, as everybody knows. But what people may not know is that ever since, I think, a 1922 Supreme Court decision, successive Supreme Court justices have held almost unanimously that it's a breach of our First Amendment, which gives the right of freedom of speech against state intervention under certain conditions, to declare a national language or a state language. And so various states that have tried this on to say, you've got to speak English here, basically always lose in the Supreme Court, and yes. I suspect always will. Yeah, I, I think so too. And because uh, 
most people, most, most judges are constitutionalists, so they will uphold uh, uh, especially the freedom of speech. Right? Yeah. Uh, Even reactionaries who might not exactly. like the idea of Spanish being essentially a coeval language right. in much of the country. Exactly. And, uh, but nevertheless, the English-only movement has, has actually achieved success in 30 states, including Florida. And Florida, uh, actually, around the time of the Mariel exodus, it was a total repudiation of Cubans, particularly, well, within, so long, uh, at the time when there were many more non-Hispanic whites, and then obviously above South Florida, all those people were, wanted to take their revenge on, on Hispanics and actually voted in an English-only, made Florida an English-only state, which is almost absurd in South Florida because <laughs> when you go to government offices, they're speaking Spanish anyway. I, perhaps you could contextualize for people the Mariel Exodus. Mariel Exodus is when, um, in 1980, uh, this one van driver stormed the Peruvian embassy and... Uh, and People started going in after him to take to get asylum because they wanted to leave Cuba. And uh, Castro, in retaliation, and seeing, because in a very short time, 10,000 people entered the Peruvian embassy, he took the guards away, and more people started going in there. And eventually, there was this pressure to have them go out. And then Castro, very cannily, decided to open up the migration of Cubans to Florida mostly and threw in with the, uh, all those Cubans who wanted to leave. He opened up the prisons and threw in criminals. He opened up the insane, uh, what, what, what did we call mental what's the political Mental hospitals. I need to be politically correct. And all, uh, as many homosexuals as were identified. And of course in his speech he talked about the scum and the scum included homosexuals, people from mental hospitals, criminals, Jehovah's Witnesses, what have you. It sounds a lot like the Nazi party. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, in a, and, and the, the result is that 125,000 Cubans ended up in South Florida. And that created an, enorm, an enormous number of antibodies against them, uh, including the passage of English only. Um, but it did create, uh, and I just taught last night, yesterday, uh, Scarface, uh, along with the history of that period. This so is a film with, uh, by Al Pacino. De Palma, with Al Pacino as the star, right. but it's the remake of the 1930s. And scripted so. by um, uh, Oliver Stone. Right. He was 36 at the time, one of his first... Uh, he was a screenwriter before yeah. he was a major yeah. director. Yeah. Yeah, so... And that's very much the era. Yes, and that film was made in 1983, which actually reflects... It, it, it's a film that's totally prejudicial because it actually has a, a, an introduction, a text, that says that 125 Cubans came, of which 25,000 were criminals, right? Now, the real facts, when you read the sociologists who crunched the numbers and found the names and all this, there were 2,750 that, were, that had criminal records. So the exaggeration was almost by 10. 
which really speaks to the moment. So the film reflects that attitude towards Cubans. Uh, and of course, in the film, you just, you know, Cubans are basically thugs or, you know, illiterate and what have you. Now, one of the things people may be interested in about this movie is that although it's a quarter of a century old, it's been embraced by different ethnic groups here in the United States in different ways, quite fascinatingly, hasn't it? Yeah. Particularly kids who are interested in uh, images of violence, but also resistance through violence against racism and repudiation. So a lot of kids walk around with the Scarface um, t-shirts of, of the poster, that black and white poster that was made for the film. But Snoop Dogg, uh, Tupac Shakur, and a series of other rappers embraced, embraced Scarface. It. Say hello to my little friend. <laughs> right. So do your students, your Cuban-American students, have an attitude to Scarface that you can discern? Mm, I don't have any Cuban-American students in my Miami class. Oh, I have they, 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 they know it already. Right. Why would I study Miami with right. you dice? Right. <laughs> I have seven Australians. Uh-huh. And I think there's only one person who was born in Miami in my class. Mm-hmm. University of Miami has a very large percentage of students from the rest of the United States. And from outside the United States. Um, of course, it does have a you know, number... Gloria Stefan went to the University of Miami. <laughs> uh, the Miami Sound Machine. No? Um, in any case, um, what was interesting was the reaction of the students. I saw Gloria on television the other day. Many parts of her face no longer move. <laughs> well, that's the case with all women who are over 50, right? Well, it's the case with me, really. I mean, no, if me too. What I mean is... Actresses and all that. I was watching someone who I never thought would do that, Susan Sarandon, uh-huh. who's my age, right? And Both very well preserved, old thing. Yes, <laughs> and she looks better, much better preserved than me. So, in any case, uh, the students love the film. You know, I expected more criticism. You know, like you know, what's the representation of Cubans? So who cares? It's like it's a good film. <laughs> interesting. Yeah. Well, what's interesting is that the students that I had in this class, uh, uh, well, none of them are Cuban. So I'd have to canvas the Cuban students who are 20 years old now to see whether or not they felt that way, whether or not they feel like the Italian-Americans with The, the Godfather. Godfather. It, or if you remember The Sopranos, yeah. when they made auditions for people to be extras and things like that, people went in droves, including colleagues that I had who were Italian-American, where they weren't figured were being discriminated against by, the, by showing The Sopranos, but for some reason they embraced it, which is a very different reaction uh, than Latinos. You remember the boycott against the uh, Chihuahua in the Taco Bell ads. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think the Italian-Americans would have done that. so worried. One last thing specifically about Miami for now, and that is the way in which Cuban-Americans slash Cubans, Cubanos there, do or do not identify as what people are often called more generically in the U.S., Hispanics or Latinos. Right. Uh, Only at a certain discursive level will they 
when it comes to some national thing when they run ad agencies you were talking before about you know marketing and publicity and advertising agencies we can get back to that but at that level of course they will because they see themselves as the brokers of such things but at home they don't see themselves as the other Hispanics because they see themselves somewhat exceptionally, right? As the, I mean, they themselves, even though the Mariel episode put a black mark on their image as a model minority that was very successful, right? They've reconstituted that uh, image of themselves. And uh, however, they do, outside of politics, where they dominate and they use strong-arm tactics in dominating politics in Miami, uh, they do get along relatively well with the other Hispanics from other places. Of course, often they're in the position of being the contractor who hires Guatemalans, you know, Mexicans, whatever. To, uh, to do, do their bidding. Yeah. Now, one of the major cultural struggles, incipient, I would say, more than anything in the United States, or dissatisfactions for a lot of Spanish speakers, is that when they watch television, it's Mexican TV that they're getting. Yeah. Lots of people get very frustrated by this. They get frustrated that when they're watching, say, foreign films dubbed into Spanish, it'll be dubbed by me with Mexican actors. They get right. frustrated that Univision uh, and Telemundo which are the two Spanish-language TV networks we have, major ones. And Univision is actually the most successful television network in English or any other language in the United States in terms of ratings, routinely. They are basically getting television from Mexico right. City. What's the attitude, would you say, in Miami to those questions? In Miami, the attitude is that it's double. I mean, but I think that the predominant attitude is that it's schlock. And Mexican television, because most of Univision's success comes from the programming that Televisa furnishes. They have a... Uh, and Televisa is the dominant Mexican yeah. television network. And it's like the fourth or fifth network in the world. I mean, after... Or it used to be, you know, the NBC, ABC, CBS. Then came Televisa, then came Globo in Brazil in terms of their... Audience reach. Audience reach. Yeah. So... Uh, the issue is is that Mexican telenovelas are generally seen as the most popular and low lowbrow cultural fair, and the way that the analysis is conducted is that well, Mexicans constitute sixty six percent of immigrants in the, of Hispanic immigrants in the United States, so it makes sense for Univision to succeed by basically providing Mexicans with fare they're already accustomed to. Uh, and that's its success. They can have a guaranteed large market by that. There is Mex uh, telev uh, telenovela production and talk shows and so on and so forth in Miami. right? And they've engaged in experiments in doing other kinds of telenovelas, and particularly when they collaborate with Colombian telenovela makers or Venezuelan ones, they find like Ugly Betty is of a different category than 
than the Mexicans. And that, however, one telling factor when it comes to the marketing of television in the United States in Spanish, when Ugly Betty was playing at the same time and looking at the ratings, um, the Mexicans had made a knockoff of the original uh, uh, Betty, Betty La, La Fea, Fea. Betty La Fea. Yeah. They, the Mexicans created Betty La Fea Mas Bella. All right, the the prettiest ugly one, right? And that was shown on Univision in the United States. It beat Ugly Betty three to one in ratings. It beat the Colombian version. It beat, the no, the American version. Uh, oh, Ugly Betty the, in English. The, yeah, it, yeah, it beat Ugly Betty in English. Yeah. That is that when it came to viewers, Ugly Betty in English was not able to woo Spanish-speaking viewers to it, right? And the taste, let's say the, 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 the custom of a certain genre, mm. And the and and the, and the how one pitches that genre at what cultural level was much more successful in the Mexican version. I was talking to Veronica Benet Martinez in the pod the other night about the fact that when I was on my way out to meet her, I've been watching Univision or maybe a cable station. I forget watching a novella, uh, a racy novella set in a radio station with much passion in the studio broadcasting boxes, and it had English subtitles. And it occurred to me that this was a very interesting technique for bringing families together, whereby right. it becomes a training tool or an educational tool for different generations. One generation to improve its English, another generation to improve its Spanish, and both generations to be able to watch together. Right. That, that, that's an important innovation. It was already in place at Telemundo, Univision is doing it, and, and largely because, because of demographics. Right. Uh, in, I think, already in the 2000 census, but definitely in the 2010 census, the U.S.-born Hispanics outnumber immigrants. So the increase in the number of Hispanics is due to U.S.-born Hispanics. And U.S.-born Hispanics study in English, particularly if they're in L.A., in New York, whatever. Um, in Miami, they can still get what you call immersion bilingualism, where you have bilingualism throughout high school in certain schools you can get that as opposed to just a transitional one that gives you bilingualism for two years or so uh, so in any case what happens at least from the market studies that I've seen is that Hispanic or Latino youth prefer to watch television in English that becomes then a problem for the future not at the moment because so long as there's migration and Spanish speakers Univision will, and all this fair in Spanish will prevail. But I think that the strategies now are being put in place, well, what, how can we deal with the future? And that future, on the one hand, deals with having things like captions, you know, subtitles. Right, right, right. Subtitles. Uh, or in the case of some Telemundo experiments, having some bilingualism. But never bilingualism to the degree that one sees. I don't know if you ever saw Que Pasa. Mm -hmm. So, what, which means like what's going on, what's happening? Yeah, it means what's happening. But what's interesting about that, it's a Miami show, and it was totally half and half. You had to be bilingual, bilingual totally, or you wouldn't understand it. Because there's long stretches of Spanish, long stretches yeah. of English, and there's no way. So, 
obviously it was not as <laughs> it ended up not being successful because it couldn't satisfy both audiences. We get some radio stations here, and I'm sure you do too, that engage in that kind of code switching. Yeah. And lots of Latinos do that code switching. Actually, when I was in the hotel last night, passing time as it happens before your arrival, I heard some South Asian guys code switching, you know, intersententially between... Right. And a South Asian language, I don't know which one, and English. You get here, I'm sure in Miami, uh, radio stations like... Uh, here it's 96.3 reggaeton, which is 96.3 and has this reggaeton music genre, which is all intersentential code switching. Right. And some of it, I think you could get if you weren't bilingual. You could still enjoy it. Oh, the no, music's that's all true. sung in Spanish, but the patter by the DJs and the chatting can be both languages really yeah. easily. No, I think, it, but that also reflects the, the code switching practices of the audience. Yeah. But that is a certain audience. In fact, you can have an audience that's predominantly English-speaking that code switches. The problem with the que pasa is that you, it, code switching, it went beyond code switching to actually having half and half. So you had to be proficient in both languages to understand it, and that's what made it. I mean, it could work in Miami in a certain period, but uh, I think in, even in Miami, we're getting past the period of yeah, of, e of real bilingualism. And there's a real difference between occasional patter on commercial radio and right. a drama on television, no doubt. Right. In, we've got about 25 minutes left, and I'd love to talk more about your past research, George, so that people who have become interested in you because of the last 37 minutes of Pearly Gems <laughs> can find out about other things you've done. And you're the author of a number of books and the editor of at least one, maybe more, I wonder if we could focus in on, on that for the moment and start with your most recent book, which I guess is four or five years ago now. Yeah. Uh, which is only available in Spanish, I think. Yes. Still, although I'm trying to secure you to <laughs> sign up to a book series I edit for a version, in, a slightly updated version in English. It's a really innovative, really exciting book. Can you tell us about that one, please? Well, it's a book that examines the impact of new technologies on, on music and the experience of music. So uh, the issue of sampling, um, digital technologies, um, access issues uh, on the part of audiences, uh, do-it-yourself work, that one finds on YouTube and other places in, in, uh, on the internet. And uh, with, with some incursions into what we might call the soundscape, like the, the impact that technology has had in the soundscape. The, the book is more oriented, well, slightly more oriented to Latin America than it is to the... In, but given the nature of that, new technologies, one is no longer in the realm of a language-specific um, domain. Because through the internet, people are listening and watching everything. So, and, and that includes looking at certain music uh, portals. Right? Uh, at the time, I forget which ones, there were some that I had but you know, this business moves so fast 
that if I have to update it, I would be talking about you know Spotify and Last.fm and Pandora and those kinds of things. And what's convenient about those that, that help actually confirm some of the ideas that I had examines what listeners actually listen to. We couldn't know that. We'd have, before the advent of these portals, right, we'd have to actually go and interview a lot of people, but that would not be accurate because people would tell you what they think they listen to, not necessarily what they really listen to, what they actually press and so the inner Adorno would be censoring them. Yeah, exactly. The inner Adorno. <laughs> and so with uh, Last FM, there was an interesting study done by a Brazilian woman two years ago that took a thousand playlists and went through them and tracked what people listened to and found what common sense said to me, and which then separates common sense from the idea that people have about their identity and what they listen to. And it's that most listeners are very eclectic in their listening of music, uh, with one slight exception, heavy metal. Heavy metal tend to listen predominantly to heavy metal. All other listeners tend to listen to very varied music. Are you saying that head-bashing, petrol-headed people... (laughs) That's, that's where identity less is. less syncretic than anybody else. If you want to talk about identitarian essentialism, that's where you find so it. So Nestor's <laughs> ideas, Bruno Latour's ideas about necessary hybridity do not apply. To heavy metal. <laughs> well, with one exception. Heavy metal do listen to a certain amount of classical music. Right? Uh, and that's Are you because... you Black Sabbath isn't classical music? That's what I meant. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Uh, But the other ones will listen to, you know, when you say, you know, somebody really invested their identity in reggaeton or in banda music here in the the Southwest. No, they're also listening to American pop, to international pop, to a series of different musics. And this book of yours, which is wonderful, the title of it in Spanish only, I think it is. It's uh, Musica, no, Nuevas Tecnologías. Musica y Experiencia. So new technologies, music and experience, pretty obviously. Right. And the publishing it's a, house? It's Gedisa. Gedisa, which Where is based are, in Buenos Aires and in uh, Barcelona, I guess. Buenos Aires, Barcelona and Mexico. And Mexico, right. And there's a great publishing house. Yeah, and we have cultural policy there, Política Cultural. Política Cultural. <laughs> Política Cultural. Uh, in addition to the books I mentioned, I left out at least two, maybe more books you've translated as well and written hefty prefaces for. Yes. Right? One very so, recently. One very recently. In which you are the tail end of. Well, I'm the tail end of so much. <laughs> so, uh, and actually, yes, let's, let's briefly talk about those, uh, those two recent tra- recentish translations because I think they, they bracket your previous two books. So you've got one just coming out. Yes. of uh, La Globalización Imaginada by Néstor García Canclini. You've translated that and written a very erudite and interesting prefatory introduction. Yes. Uh, I was interested in doing that. Actually, the, the reality is I think that the idea arose about 10 years ago and the realization of it just happened. 
actually I finished a translation one and a half, two years ago, and it didn't go anywhere in part if you're listening, Ken Whistaker, because the press didn't move on it, and um, which gave me time to revise the translation for you and Nestor to do the epilogue and for me to think about the introduction and write it. And that's coming out with Duke University Press. The nice thing about it being that Nestor was able to update this imagined globalization from 99 to take right. account of the many things that have happened in the field since, right. like China and India being major players compared to the past and right. the generation of this war on terror, so-called. Right. Well, a lot of things changed. In fact, that's what, in a sense, and the, the preface crisis. is about, the and financial the crisis. A whole bunch of different things make, including in Latin America, Latin America was in deep crisis when Nestor wrote the book in 1999. Well, it's a different situation, although who knows what will happen in Argentina, but Brazil is a much more stable and successfully, uh, economically successful country. Argentina is booming, possibly in a Weimar way. We don't know yet. Yes. Uh, what well, I probably think in a Weimar What Nestor way. and other people tell me and people that I talk to is that uh, the, the finance minister does not release the truth about inflation. In, oh, absolutely. Inflation in and unemployment. And yeah. Meanwhile, uh, because of their balance of payments figures, they're in a position to increase borrowing <coughs> and increase right. public sector pay. Which, so people are happy because right. their pay is outstripping inflation. But that's happened before. To it. That's happened before. And, and it ends in tears. The forecasters have said, you know, the shit's going to hit the fan soon. And it, I remember uh, Jorge Castañeda addressing that very specifically, giving talks and writing, a, uh, not a book, articles about it, about the shit hitting the fan. You can't, in, in the previous mode, with neoliberalism, you can't keep privatizing everything and using those funds to pay your debt and borrow more, because at some point you'll have privatized everything and then you can't pay any loans anymore. Castañeda is a major Mexican intellectual, was a, an acquaintance and biographer of Che Guevara, is also a renowned academic around the world, was a member of the Mexican government as foreign secretary briefly early in the 21st century, and is somebody who's traveled, I guess, from being Marxist to kind of neoliberal. Yeah. yeah. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that's fair to yeah, say. Yeah. Although neoliberal people have their second thoughts about it now. Now, yeah, right. I'm right. sure he's going through Everybody's probably saying, you know, well, it didn't yeah, work. He keeps thinking he's going to be president of Mexico. No, that's a fantasy. Never going <laughs> If you're happen. listening, Jorge. Jorge, think again. He writes a book every time there's a Mexican presidential election, which six people, namely George and me, read. Yeah, but he's a very smart guy. Very able. Uh, and um, he did, was right on the money about Argentina. And I imagine that uh, the critics now uh, of, of the practices of the Argentine government under Cristina Kirchner, Fernandez de Kirchner, uh, will, will also uh, make those predictions. Brazil is another case. Brazil has a much greater stability. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's not fitting. It's not... Uh, fixing the numbers. No. So, uh, moving back to the translation uh, question, before uh, your book on Nuevas Tecnologías, uh, La Musica, etc., for Gedisa, you translated from Spanish another Nestor Garcia Canclini book, a very famous book as well, 
called what is it, ciudadanos y consumidores, citizens and consumers. Also, also into English, as I said, and for maybe University of Minnesota Press in right. this case. Yes. When when was that translation? That came out in two thousand and one, I think. Actually, it came out before the expediency of culture, and it came out before cultural policy. Right. All right. So let's quickly deal with it, and then go right. go forward to expediency well, of culture. So this book uh, has a very long preface by you that really helps to contextualize Garcia Canclini's uh, standing and thinking. Yes, uh, it, it, it examines basically two dimensions. One, um, the role of consumption and the way that it cross-cuts notions of citizenship or practices of citizenship. If, if citizenship is not simply uh, a question of voting, but it's a question of participation, then in what ways, what are the... Uh, opportunities and limits of consumption as a vehicle of participation. Mm. So that's one thing, and, and he Nestor had a position that he had developed in that range, a critical one because uh, given the presence of transnational corporations in Latin America, as well as neoliberal policies, they radically limited that possibility of consumption as a vehicle of participation. Um, on the other hand, the other item discussed in that preface is Nestor Garcia Conclini within the realm of cultural studies, which has been a largely Anglo-US enterprise and imagined that way. And there were a lot of demands on Garcia Conclini as a cultural seen as a cultural studies scholar from the US looking at Latin America. I remember one of the things is was like, how could he have written that other book, Hybrid Cultures, without having quoted Homi Baba? <laughs> right? <laughs> and the thing is, like, nobody has Homi Baba. How could he have written, you know, about hybridity without having quoted Garcia yes. Conclini? Yeah. But the issue was there is that there were certain views of Garcia Conclini coming from different sectors and, and, and you know, the, the kind of issues of post-coloniality that Homi Baba was dealing with were not framed in such a way that Garcia Conclini was dealing with those. He was dealing with a set of other issues. Um, but eventually they came together, and, and, and in a previous edition, Garcia Conclini had read and addressed some of the, and, and, and charted out some of the differences there. But it, it, what, what the preface also attempted to do is deal with some of the expectations from the U.S. of someone who had largely spent his time analyzing Latin America, in particular Argentina and Mexico and Brazil. Uh, and so it's an intervention into examining how we look at intellectuals across different uh, geocultural formations. And then these other two books you mentioned, Cultural Policy and The Expediency of Culture, perhaps you could just tell us a little bit about those. Well, Cultural Policy is a Toby Miller invention. <laughs> uh, Toby Miller, uh, who's sitting right there in front of me, 
had uh, gotten a contract with Sage. And he said to me, well, would you like to co-write this book with me? I think it would be interesting to include all this Latin American stuff. All that, all that stuff down there that you all people do. All that stuff do. down there. Although we both coincided because you came from an Anglo-British uh, or more larger than, than English, right? It included Australia. Plus, we both had a background in the development. We actually, Toby and I, taught courses, courses on cultural policy at New York University, and in which we had a lot of fun and a lot of great students. Uh, and it was probably in the um, climate of those collaborations that you thought, well, why don't we do that? And in that, we, we, in, in those courses, we examined cultural policy in many different contexts, in Asia, in Europe, Latin America, so on and so forth, Bulgaria. Um, and so the book does reflect different cultural policy contexts, including 19th century ones, uh, fascist ones, the Nazis, the populist ones in Latin America, so on and so forth. Uh, and, and so I see the book in a kind of reflecting many of the interests we had in, in that cultural policy course, and also a, a certain amount of emphasis on the United States as well, certainly going back to the cultural front and to the whole development of, well, the, 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 the cultural war uh, policies, the, the, the Cold War cultural policies, and then the, the, what you could consider, you know, cultural policy after civil rights, with the formation of the NEA and the state arts councils, and the development of that in the United States. The United States not having seen itself ever in terms of cultural policy. So to put the United States in together with all these other places, is an interesting, you know, in all modesty, you could say, well, it was an interesting attempt to place the United States in this larger context. And it, it was translated into Spanish, as we were saying, uh, also Chinese. Chinese. And, and Farsi, though we've never seen it. We did yeah. a revised preface. Not that we, could, re not that we could read the read Chinese it. one either. No, <laughs> but it, it is out in, we assume it's out in Farsi. They asked us yeah. to write a a new preface right. for our, to our Farsi readers. Well, maybe because of the tensions between the United States and Iran, we won't get to see it. Well, also, I think Iran not so interested in copyright. <laughs> uh, now, The Expediency of Culture, a wonderful book that came out maybe in Spanish first. came out in Spanish at the end of 2002 in December. Right, and it's... Uh, and it came out in 2003 in English. So the same year, 2002, as Cultural Policy comes out. And is it called, it's not called The Expediency of Culture in Spanish. It's like Cultura como Recurso. No, it's called El Recurso de la Cultura. El Recurso de la Cultura. Which is a knockoff of a Carpentier a title of a novel, um, which I just forgot the second word, El Recurso. Everyone who knows Carpentier's novels... <laughs> El recurso, whatever the recurso was fill in, in the, the carpentier. The first and neatest correct entry wins lunch with George on me. Right. And in any case... Uh, so why did you change the title from culture, you know, the resource of culture? Because culture something like culture as resource sounds boring. Right, the expediency of culture sounds sexy because it's a long... Well, it, it's that when culture becomes an alibi for everything. 
it yeah. becomes an expedient uh, mode of dealing with a whole set of other issues. And in the... Actually, this also came out of work we did together in privatization of culture, which was a, a research project that we had at NYU beginning in 1996 or seven, And it, the funding lasted us enough. We took it through like 2002. And we had a couple of major conferences. And uh, in any case, what the reason for that is that it became very evident under on on neoliberalism that there were different justifications for supporting culture. And that the old highfalutin ones, it's because it's good for you, and it makes you a well-tempered self, and all these kinds of things. You know, policymakers could give a shit anymore about that. They began to say, well, it creates resources for urbanization, for, and within cities, which is a total lie, because of gentrification, actually doesn't produce social cohesion, it, but it much... It enables the middle class to have publicly underwritten access to nice places. Yeah, nice museums and, you know, <laughs> concert halls and all kinds of things like that. Uh, and, and, and then even incredibly, you know, expedient ones like saying, well, we have to fund culture because you realize that if people actually studied the violin or the piano when they were four, they're going to do much better in mathematics when they're 12. So you get these studies that prove that culture does all these good things for you. So the, the fact is that when culture no longer had an inherent value, right, that there's a whole slew of strategies for supporting culture. And so, and, but the, the, the book actually examines that in the context of neoliberalism, of globalization, of a whole series of turns that have taken place globally, uh, including the, the, the place of, of, of the immaterial in production, right? Uh, somewhat of a different interest in that than, than, the, than the Hart and Negri uh, with, with the multitude rising and sort of becoming the the, the, the new agent of history. As Brooklyn philosophers would say, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So in any case, uh, it examined that. And then, um, so aside from those quote-unquote theoretical chapters that look at that, actually there's one that makes a claim about the role of performativity in all this, which is the second chapter. But then there's chapters that actually are fieldwork. And for example, the examination of insight, which is an art event that takes place every three or four years in, San, in, this, in the San Diego-Tijuana corridor. So this is the area between California and northern Mexico. Yeah. That how all of that is negotiated and brought about, right? So it, it's an actual application to a case study with, with strong ethnographic research, which usually in art criticism, uh, certainly much more in, in cultural studies work, but in art criticism, ethnography doesn't exist. You sort of say what the, you know, why a work of art is important without, you know. so one of the funny things is that as, as we're going around, these are installation projects, 
you know, for example, artists go down to the border area and invariably get interested in the border fence because it's such a powerful object. Uh, and they try to intervene it in certain ways. And in most cases, the artists fail to create something more powerful than the fence itself. Right? Some of them put holes so you could see from one side to the other and have some kind of allegory of international collaboration, whatever. They intervene the fence in many different ways. But one of the things that no one ever asks, no matter what they say about how great these projects are, what do, what do people think about them? So I went around asking people, everyday people, like, what do you think of these things? You know, like, and in one case in Tijuana, some artists overnight had put up a, a handball court. And all of a sudden, people find in their neighborhood this handball court. So as we went there, the group of artists and critics and everything, I started interviewing people. Oh, do, you, do you know what that thing is over there that somebody put there? He says, no, I don't know what that is. Like someone just like one night when no one was looking put this up. And all I know is that because they also have a light so people could you know, play handball at night, it's right on the fence, right? He says, all the people who, you know, all the druggies hang out there because it became a place for the druggies to hang out. <laughs> so, so it's actually causing a problem in the neighborhood. <laughs> and I said, well, what, what if I told you that it's a work of art? And the guy sort of looked at me and said, a work of art? He says, I don't know. I, I didn't recognize it as a work of art. And he looked across the street and there's a mural. And he says, now, that's a work of art. And you could see the guy's signature, but nobody signed the handball court. So how would I know it's a work of art? So you start getting these kinds of narratives about what's going on and the disconnect between all this work of artists really being socially concerned about doing things in neighborhoods without the interaction of the people who are going to live it in their neighborhoods. So you begin to examine some of these issues of like, how people relate to what's going on. So you're looking at cultural policy in this book in its broadest sense in terms of both the macro level of the supposed benefits industrially and civilizationally yeah, some of these the... interventions and also at a textual and ethnographic level, right. what do these mean as they're lived? Right. Because the claims are when you have culture as resource that it's going to do all these wonderful things for you. Either it's going to make you a better, better math student or that it's going to create social cohesion, or that it's going to do X, Y, or Z, or raise the income level of people living in a particular area. It's something else when you actually go and interview the people who live in these places. And George, my final question, you've written many other works. We'll have to go back to those in another part, I think, because we're, we're both jonesing for food by now, probably. <laughs> my final question is, in a podcast I did with Stuart Cunningham about creative industries, creative cities, creative class, one of the metaphors or similes that he used, and I think he used it there, but it might have been somewhere else, is that in terms of the move towards this creative industry's deeply applied model, where cultural creativity will renew everything, the toothpaste is out of the tube. It can't go back in. Do you feel that way about culture as resource, or do you still see value in autonomy of art debates? This is for five points. You have 60 seconds starting. <laughs> Actually, I've written about that because 
I've written a critique of Nestor's book, La Sociedad Sin Relato. Which is Nestor's next book after the ones we've been talking about and which George has not translated. No, and I'm not going to because someone else is translating it. Uh, which, by the way, Nestor is not the easiest person to translate. It, it takes effort. Uh, I've translated Nestor, but I translated an interview, which wasn't so difficult. But mm -hmm. La Sociedad Sin Relato. Yeah, in any case, Nestor... Um, I am still somewhat of a contextualist of historical grounding and all this. And I do see that the discourse of, of the imminence or immanence of art, imminence with, with of art. an A in the middle, not an Yeah, I. an imminence of art that is something that, that always beckons to the unfinished, that, you know, it's, it's um, something indeterminable. Or actually, it harks back to Kant. It, it is, in some sense, disinterested and can't be pegged to determinations in any really hard and fast way. So Nestor has it two ways in this book. On the one hand, art is everywhere outside itself. It's in the math classroom, it's in social cohesion, it's in creative cities, so on and so forth. In other words, art has found its grounding there and it can never go back to itself. However, at the same time, the argument for the value of that art, which is everywhere else, is that it is beyond determination. Uh, the difficulty I have with that is that it is, I think, confusing the effect of art. It is. It's going out there in all these different places and actually not assessing what the real effect of that is. Often, the political effect of art, of being critical or doing something like that. The difficulty of doing that within a museum or doing it out, outside. And at the same time, saying that its political effect is its imminence. The fact that it doesn't make the ideological, fixed ideological statement. And what I do in this critique that's not, I'm going to go work through it more because I plan to write my own book on aesthetics and politics, is that I think we live now in a post-Kantian. I mean, I think the Kantian trajectory is interesting because the most recent aestheticists like Jacques Rancière or even Deleuze have more or less upheld the Kantian view. And I think that there's many ways in which we can move outside of that, and that's what I've been working on. So. In this case, it, it won't be so much in resonance with, with Nestor's view in, in, in La Sociedad Sin Relato. Just to show that the translator is not simply the creature of... Oh, it's a translator tra traitor. <laughs> translator traitor. George, you to say thank you very much, however you pronounce your last name. It's been great being with you as always, and I'm hoping that you will re-enter the pod to take us backwards and forwards in your various adventures. Well, thank you, Toby. <laughs>